You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Austin. Well, good morning, church family. Glad you're here. Good to see you. Welcome to Redeemer. Um, Before we get back into our text today, I do want to tell you about uh, two resources that our team has put together as we enter into Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday, so it marks the beginning of the final week of Jesus's life. And we've been walking with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And and so as we start Holy Week this week, our, our team wanted to provide resources for you to really engage. We've been walking through these final days of Jesus's life over the last several weeks in Mark's Gospel, and we thought it could be a really great opportunity to go back to those scenes and dig in a bit more personally. And so we have a Holy Week uh, devotional guide that has been put together. Pastor Rick did a great job putting this together. And, and so that's available for you. We have some hard copies out in the resource in the lobby at the resource table. It's also online. You can find it on our app if you want to get it digitally. And then our kids team, along with Jessica Jenkins, who's one of our partners here at Redeemer, they have put together a resource for families, for kiddos. And so there's a, a Holy Week a guide for kids and for families to dig into those scenes. There's uh, there's readings and discussion questions. There are uh, uh, paper uh, dolls so that your kids can even interact with the different characters and the stories. And so we want you to engage. We hope we resource you well. So be sure to grab the Holy Week resources and, um, and use those this week as we prepare our hearts for Good Friday and Eastern uh, coming up next Sunday. Okay, well, if you're not already open with me to, to chapter 14 of Mark's gospel, would you get there? I want to take us back to chapter 14, starting in verse 53. And as we walk back through the trials of Jesus, I want to put a word in your mind this morning. I want to put a word in your mind. And that word is willingness. Willingness. Many years ago, my wife and I found ourselves living next door to a family that was in the grip of drug addiction. And Sammy and I befriended them, and we were surprised to find out how quick they were to open their lives to us and share their stories and their their struggle with us. They were open and receptive, and it was clear that they wanted a different life and they wanted a different path, but they were stuck in the grip of addiction. And it would be a common thing for me to get a phone call from the husband in this family who had opened his life to me and began to trust me, and he would often call me and ask me about my willingness about my willingness, my willingness to say, come outside at 9.30 at night to talk, my willingness to help out with a bill that they couldn't meet so that their electricity or water wouldn't get turned off, my willingness or my wife's willingness to watch their kids for them uh, in a certain situation or circumstances. It would always go something like this, Jordan, would you be willing to blank? You see, loving a family, battling drug addiction takes a lot of willingness. Some of you have maybe been in similar situations. And we did the best that we could possibly do with what we had at that time. But here's what I learned during that season. I learned that this relationship, from this relationship, that there are limits to my willingness. In other words, their neediness overwhelmed my willingness. You got me? You with me? And I bet that there are things in your life where your willingness also hits its limits. In our text today, we find Jesus willing to stand trial for crimes he didn't commit. 
There are two trials recorded for us by Mark. First, Jesus stands trial before the Sanhedrin. That's the religious leaders, the religious authorities among Israel, where Jesus is charged and convicted. And that's in chapter 14. We'll look at that in a moment. And then we see Jesus stand a second trial, a trial before Rome, before Pontius Pilate, where he is sentenced. Uh, Austin read that passage for us, where he's, uh, the, the chapter, the, the final verse there in verse 15 tells us that he's scourged, severely beaten, and then he's delivered to be crucified. And I think that Mark wants us to see in these two trials of Jesus, the willingness of Christ, the willingness of Christ from three different angles, his willingness to be judged, his willingness to be shamed, and his willingness to be rejected. Let me pray for us, and we'll walk back through the trials of Jesus. Almighty God, we come before you this morning, and we first and foremost thank you for the privilege to gather around your word with your people. What a gift it is. And so we invite you now, Holy Spirit, to come and to teach us, to be our teacher, open the word to us, illuminate it, that we might see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the love of the Father, that we might receive it. Would you also open our own hearts and minds to show us ways in which we need to um, receive from you today? Would we be willing to receive from you today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him from a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. It's interesting. We left off last week. We saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane arrested, and he tells Peter previous to this that Peter would deny him three times. It seems as if Peter is willing to be faithful to Jesus, but as we will see, his willingness too will hit a limit. Last week, we looked at the arrest of Jesus, and it's important that we remember that this did not come to a shock as a shock to Jesus. Jesus is not in any way surprised by the fact that he's being bound and arrest, arrested and bound and carried to stand trial by night before the Sanhedrin. In fact, in, in the meal that they shared earlier that night, Jesus spoke clearly about what would happen, that he would be handed over, he would be betrayed, handed over that night. He tells Peter that he would deny him three times, and that's coming. You'll, you see that in chapter 14. Why is this important to remember this? Well, it tells us that Jesus knows what is ahead of for him in every way. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it says this, as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. He began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. Deliver him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus tells them this before they even make their way into the city of Jerusalem. In fact, this is the third time that Jesus has told them what awaits him. He's told them this in chapter 9, verse 31, and he told them this in chapter 8, verse 31, exactly what would happen to him. I want us to be clear as we enter into this text. Jesus is not shocked. Jesus is not stunned by the, uh, by, by the, the unfounded claims that are being uh, 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 thrown at him. Jesus is not surprised. No, Jesus willingly stands where he stands in this moment. He willingly stands in the dock. He willingly stands 
unjustly judged. Look at verse 55. Look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. What is it that they are seeking in this trial? Is it the truth about Jesus? Is that what they're seeking in the trial? What is it that they're seeking in the trial? No, what they're seeking in the trial is the death of Jesus. They are searching, scrounging, trying to come up with some testimony that would justify putting Jesus to death. Jesus has been arrested, and now he's being tried, and there is no real charge against him. You see, the death of Jesus is what the Sanhedrin has been after since chapter 11, when Jesus enters into the temple and turns over tables and calls out their hypocrisy. Do you remember this from chapter 11? The scene that Jesus makes, he says, you've turned the, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, the house of God into a house of the wicked, into a hideout for robbers. Ever since this moment, when Jesus publicly exposed their hypocrisy, they have been seeking to destroy him. Mark chapter 11, verse 18 tells us this, the chief priests and the scribes, they heard what Jesus said about them and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. You see, it's not that Jesus has committed a crime. It's not that Jesus is guilty. It's that they are threatened. They're insecure. They're afraid. They're envious of Jesus's movement and of Jesus's influence. In fact, it's occupied them all week. This is Friday, Late in, the, late in the evening, Thursday into Friday, since, since Monday, when, this, when Jesus entered, Sunday when Jesus entered the temple, and Monday when he began to teach, they've been occupied with killing Jesus. And from the very beginning of this trial, it's clear that their motivation, their motivation is not justice. Their motivation is not to act justly. Their motivation is not the love of God or love for his law or love for his people, but it's fear and jealousy. You see, everything about this trial that Jesus is standing here before the Sanhedrin. Everything about it is illegal, even according to their own law and custom. There, there, it was illegal for there to be a capital case, a, a trial held by night, according to their own law. It was illegal for there to be a trial where there's no witness testimony. Everything about this is illegal. It is a kangaroo court. They aren't seeking testimony to determine a verdict. They have already determined the verdict, and they're trying to manufacture evidence to justify killing the Christ. But it becomes a disaster quickly. Look at verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. agree. And so, so they are mining every option. Maybe we could say this about him, or maybe we can say that about him. It seems like the one that is kind of their, their best option is to say that he threatened that with his own hands he would destroy the temple. That certainly would have been a capital offense under their law. But we know that Jesus never said this, and they know that Jesus never said this. They can't even agree upon this. They know that if they went public with this charge, that the people would, would, would say, that's not what he said. That's, that's not what happened. And this all seems to frustrate the high priest, the holiest person that was supposed to be the holiest man among the holiest nation, the high priest seems to get frustrated by all of this. He just wants Jesus gone. Look what he says in verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and he asked 
Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Jesus remained silent. And I think that the silence of Jesus actually speaks to us here if we will listen. The silence of Jesus, it proves how condemnable this whole deal really is. There is no real charge. There is no real witnesses. There is no real trial. He's clearly innocent, yet he willingly, silently, willingly stands accused. I think Mark wants this, the silence of Jesus in the face of unjust accusations to flicker Isaiah 53 verse 7 in our minds. I think he wants us to think about the prophet Isaiah who spoke of the Messiah that would come as a suffering servant. And what does he say in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7? He says that the Messiah would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shearers would he be. See, what happens next is interesting. The high priest, who is so clearly frustrated that they can't come up with a charge, they can't quite figure out how to get rid of Jesus without being completely negligent. He's frustrated. Jesus won't speak. They're hoping maybe he would say something and they could twist his words and condemn him. They've been after that for a while, and it hasn't worked. And so since he won't speak, what the high priest does is he puts him under an oath to force him to answer. We see this in Matthew's gospel Chapter 26, verse 63. You see, in our judicial system, we have the right to remain silent so that we don't incriminate ourselves. But in in antiquity, that wasn't the case. You could be put under oath and then you were forced to speak. And if you didn't speak when you were put under an oath, you were then condemned as guilty because you wouldn't speak. And so Jesus, Jesus speaks. Look at verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one sent from God, he says. And Jesus' response is absolutely explosive. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, in this kangaroo court, the truth finally comes out. The truth about Jesus finally comes comes out. And it's explosive. The high priest tore his garments. And he said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as to serving death. Let let me try and explain what Jesus says as simple as possible. Here's what Jesus says. they, They say, are you the Christ? Are you the one sent from God or not? Say something. Speak. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, You are not the judge. I'm the judge. You are not the judge. I am the eternal judge. I am not the one condemned. You are the one who will be condemned if you do not repent. That's what Jesus says. They say, are you the Christ? And he says, I am the Christ. And then he uses images from Daniel chapter 7 that talks about the end of the age when the Messiah will come in glory, come with Clouds. That's what that means with the in cloud, the Shekinah glory, that the Son of Man will return at the end of the age in glory. And what will he do when he comes again? He will come to judge. He will come to administer the justice of God on earth as it is in heaven. And that will not be a good day for those who reject the Christ. Jesus says, You're not the judge, I'm the judge. 
I'm the judge. I am the judge being judged by you. I am the authority, not you. See, it's a claim of divinity, this secret that Mark has kind of been keeping from us throughout his entire gospel about the identity of Jesus. Here it is. It's clear as day. Finally, true testimony comes out, and it seems that they can't handle it. They, the high priest tears his clothes as a uh, this kind of overreaction of, his, of his, uh, his indignation at the words of Jesus. It's a, it's a sign that he's mourning at this, at this claim that he would make. And they immediately condemn him to death. Blasphemy, despite all of the overwhelming evidence supporting his claim, they can't comprehend that the Christ would be a suffering servant. He's got to die. Blasphemy. And so they've finally agreed upon a charge. It's not that, he's going to tear, that he said he's going to tear down the temple. It's not this. It's not that. It's, it's blasphemy. But the only problem is that they don't have the authority to put him to death for blasphemy. This is something that Rome would have had to approve. And so they have to take him to Pilate. And so they're going to try and convince Pilate that he is a threat to Rome and he deserves death. But before they, before they do, there's a bit more that they, that they need to do. Look at verse 65. Mark wants us to see not only is Jesus willing to be judged, he's the judge who is judged, but that he's willing to be shamed. And, and some, these are among the, the, those among the council of Israel, and some began to spit on him, to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. It's hard to imagine a more shameful act than this. Our Messiah, not only is he condemned, but now he is shamed. The, the Savior's face spit upon him, blindfolded and punched. It's one thing to, brace, to know a punch is coming and brace for it. It's a whole other thing to have no idea that it's coming and to just literally be sucker punched by the leaders of Israel. They mock him. Oh yeah, you think you're the son of man? You think you're the judge? Prophesy, son of man. Do something about it, son of man. He's beaten by guards as he's handed over. Beaten, plummeted. See, there's so much that could be said here, but what is it that Mark wants us to see? It's the willingness of the Christ. Do you see it? The willingness of Jesus to stand shamed and scorned. You see, here's what we have to understand as we look at this text, that at any moment during this trial, Jesus could have turned this whole thing upside down. Do you see that? At any moment during all of this, Jesus could have done what he did in the temple as they were trying to trap him and twist his words, and he exposed their traps and blew it all up. At any moment, Jesus could have said, this is an illegal trial. At any moment, Jesus could have said, let me call some witnesses. The law says that there needs to be witnesses here. Let me call some witnesses. And Jesus could have called a sick man whom he healed to come and testify to his power in nature. Jesus could have called some lame men to walk in. Jesus could have called uh, eyewitnesses to come in and testify to his authority and power to cease winds and storms and calm the seas. Jesus could have called in demons to testify to his nature and his power. But what does he do? Willingly stands in the dock. Willingly stands accused. Willingly stands condemned. Willingly shamed and beaten. There's one more thing that Mark wants us to see, and it's that Jesus, the righteous one, willingly 
is rejected. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. I'll look back at chapter 15, 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. There are two things that I want to point out about Jesus' trial before Pilate. If, if, if his trial before the Sanhedrin was illegal, his trial before Pilate is haphazard at best. Two things I want to point out. One, it's clear that Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. It's not that Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. Well, he could be innocent. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. Look back at verse 10, chapter 15. Uh, Verse 10 tells us that it's clear that Pilate, it's clear to Pilate that they have delivered him over, that they've brought him bound out of jealousy, out of envy, out of rivalry. That's why they've brought him in. Not because he's guilty and certainly not guilty of death, not because he's a criminal, and not because he's a threat to Rome. And it's likely that what's happening here is Pilate knows that he's innocent. In fact, the other gospel accounts tell us that Pilate, it's so clear to Pilate that he's innocent, that Pilate's like, hey, wait, he's a Galilean. Listen, get, send him to Herod. And so he punts it to Herod. He's like, this is a joke, guys. Go, go bother Herod with this nonsense. And they go to Herod, and then Herod punts it back to Pilate. And Pilate's, it's clear, Pilate knows that they're that, they're, that he's innocent. But Pilate has one job this week. You know what Pilate's one job is this week? It's the Passover in Jerusalem. And Pilate's one job is to make sure that things don't get out of hand, that there's no riot, riots and that there's no revolts against Rome while all of these pilgrims are in Jerusalem. That's Pilate's one job. And what does the text tell us that the chief priests are doing? They are riling up the crowds. This is their only way. They're riling up the crowds. And it's most likely that this, these crowds were crowds of zealots. They knew that it was the tradition that Pilate would, would possibly release a prisoner on the Passover. And so there are these prisoners who are there from the last insurgents, the last revolt, Jewish revolt against Rome. And so it's likely that they're zealots. And so Luke tells us, Luke's gospel tells us that what they're saying are two things. The chief priests are stirring up the crowds. This man has defiled our tradition. That would make sense. A bunch of zealots, right? Guess what else they say? That Luke's gospel says, they say, this man says we should pay taxes to Caesar. That's like red meat to the zealots. And so what do they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. We want Barabbas. We'd rather have Barabbas than this guy. Crucify him. And Pilate's one job. Look back at, at, at verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowds. His one job. Don't let the crowds get out of control on the Passover. He delivers Jesus. Pilate knows that he's innocent. He knows he's innocent. And Mark wants us to see this, the willingness of Jesus to stand innocent and be rejected by his own people. And the second thing that I want to point out about Pilate is that the text tells us in verse 5 that Pilate is astonished by Christ. He's amazed, is what it says in the ESV. He's astonished. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a wowness. 
He's amazed by Jesus. Why is this the case? That's the question I want to ask us. Why is Pilate amazed by Jesus? This is where I want to land the plane. What is it that Pilate finds astonishing about Jesus? Well, it's this, the willingness of Christ. It's his willingness that that just blows, Pilate can't comprehend why he would be so willing to stand where he stands. It makes no sense to Pilate that he would stand there and he would give no answer. That he would receive these charges with no defense. That he would make no arguments. With with death hanging over him, crucifixion, the, the most excruciating and humiliating way a person can die, Jesus stands there unwilling to make a defense, unwilling to plead his case, willing to die. And that, my friends, is the question that we too ought to be asking as we approach this text. It ought to be the thing that amazes us. Why the willingness of Jesus? And the only answer, the only logical answer to the willingness of Christ to stand in the dock in the seat of judgment, to stand as the Savior, shamed, scorned, scrooged, Reject, scourged, excuse me, rejected. Public speaking is difficult. The only logical answer, willing to die, is that he's accomplishing something. He's accomplishing something greater than we can see in the moment. He's accomplishing something that is being revealed, something that has been hidden for ages in God. And what is that something? Well, it's that this world is so marred in sin, it is so deeply corrupted with evil. You and I as human beings are so hostile toward God and toward one another. We are so deeply flawed and broken. We are so incapable of righteousness and justice. We are so bent toward sin and evil. Our neediness is so great Our neediness is so great that God himself had to come and stand in the midst of it all. He had to come stand in our place, in our judgment. He had to stand in our shame, in our guilt, in our place, rejected that guilty men and women might go free in order to accomplish our redemption. And Mark wants us to see he does it willingly. You see, our neediness, it is so great. It is oh so great, our neediness, but it does not exhaust nor overwhelm the willingness of the Christ. See, we must understand that Jesus stands in our place willingly. He peeks toward his crucifixion willingly, not out of duty, but out of love. He's motivated by love. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured this cross, and he despised its shame for joy set before him. Colossians 1, 19 through 20, tells us that, that Christ was pleased to give his life to make peace between man and God. Making peace by the blood of his cross, it pleased him. Love. Willingness motivated by love. Love for the Father who sent him, Love for the world which compelled him and love for you 
love for you. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe the willingness of Christ for you? The eternal judge would stand judged for you. The all-sufficient Savior would stand shamed for you. The righteous one would stand rejected for you. Do you believe that this morning? What grace God offers us as we close this morning? I want to tell you something. I want you to hear me. Hear me as we close. The willingness of the Christ has not stopped. You hear me? His willingness has not stopped. In other words, his love for sinners and strugglers like you and me, it was not tapped out at the cross. His willingness has not stopped. Now the scriptures tell us that the risen Christ sits now at the right hand of the Father and he willingly pleads for you. Do you believe that? That he is for you right now? He willingly advocates for you. The scriptures tell us he's able to sympathize with you in your weakness, in your humanness, in your strugglingness, in your sinfulness. He's able to, he sympathizes towards you. He is a sympathetic savior towards you. In other words, what does that mean? The, 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 the intercession of Christ for you right now is willingness for you. What does that mean? It means that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, constantly hitting refresh on the grace of God for you. And he's doing that willingly. Do you believe that? Will you receive that truth? What, sa- what a savior, what grace. And I want you to know something. He is here with us now. He's promised this, that he's here with us now by his spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And he is willing this morning to meet with you, to give grace to you. The question this morning is not, is Jesus Christ willing? The question is not, is Jesus Christ willing to forgive my sin that I carried into this place? That's not the question. The question is not, is Jesus Christ willing to lift me up from the burdens that I feel? The question is not, is Jesus Christ, is he, is he, is he, is he willing to lead me and guide me? That's not the question. The question is, are we willing to turn to him? Are we willing to truly turn to him, to confess our sin, to confess that sin, to cast those cares upon him and believe that he cares for us, to allow him to lift us up? Are we willing to obey him that we might get unstuck from an unsatisfying life? See, as we close this morning, that's the question. It's not, is Jesus willing to meet with us? It's, are we willing to turn to him? Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we turn to you this morning. We turn to you as the one who has in every way identified with us so that we might be identified with Christ. What grace. What gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer? And as we enter into a time of response this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would awaken our willingness. As we've seen the willingness of Jesus to stand in our place, to stand judged, condemned, shamed, scorned, handed over to death on a cross. His willingness to live for us. Jesus, your willingness to die for us. Jesus, your willingness to raise for us, your willingness to be seated and intercede for us. As we've seen the willingness of Christ, I pray this morning that you would awaken our willingness. Our willingness to turn to you this morning. 
our willingness to turn over doubts to you this morning, that our faith might be strengthened, our willingness to confess to you this morning sins in our lives that we're entangled in, that we might receive mercy and forgiveness and redemption. Our willingness to stop trying to be our own Savior and Lord, manager of our own life and our own troubles, and we would cry out and confess that we need your help this morning. Cast our cares upon you. Our willingness to forgive, our willingness to obey and to serve and to love, our willingness to give. Would you awaken this morning our willingness to be your people until the day of your return, fully devoted to you? We love you, Christ Jesus. We thank you that you're with us by your spirit. Father, we thank you that you have first loved us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.